Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis and all the football issues that you're debating. And we're going to help by talking about it as well. I'm Ian McGarry, and joining me as ever is Duncan Castles. Uh, it has to be said, being the Transfer Under podcast, we'd like to be Duncan where the action is. And I'm recording this in Spain because obviously this is the hub of what's going to be happening until September 2nd when the European transfer window closes. Now, we're going to start with, um, you know, one of the biggest stories of the summer and some developments, of course, uh, with. Neymar and Paris Saint-Germain. Um, Duncan and I have been decided that we're going to uh, call this segment the Neymar's sister buys presents for Europeans' top footballers uh, because it's a holding pattern right now over the, uh, the, the capital of France. Everyone is hovering uh, in the ether. Well, I say everyone, but certain players are waiting for Neymar to take off for Spain and they can land then in their own destinations. So what my information is, is that Paris Saint-Germain have told both Real Madrid and Barcelona, whom they've been negotiating with over this move, in the case of Real Madrid in the past seven days, in the case of Barcelona, of course, the last seven weeks, um, that they have set a deadline of Wednesday in order to, and this is quoting directly from the source, to receive a realistic and credible offer for the Brazil international. Now, that says two things, Duncan. It says, one, we don't believe we've had a realistic and credible offer as yet from anyone, but most obviously significantly Barcelona, and second to that, Real Madrid. And also, they are desperate, uh, not desperate, but they have decided that they have to bring this to a conclusion because they need to replace Neymar should they get this realistic, incredible offer that they have asked for from whichever suitor comes up with it. Now, my information, and we've spoken about it on the, the podcast before, is Paulo Dybala, who um, was on the bench for Juventus uh, in their Serie A game last weekend. Uh, an unused substitute remains the person hovering closest to the part de France in terms of the holding pattern. And his agent and brother, believes that they've agreed a contract with Paris in order that he can move there should Neymar move to Spain. But in terms of negotiations with regards to Neymar, his father and agent, Nepai, um, that has yet to reach an agreement. Um, Duncan, do you think it's realistic, to use Paris's own language, that they will get an offer by Wednesday? I think the, the, the hold-up here, what's stopping... Um uh, Neymar's sister, Rafaela, from uh, starting the birthday party and handing out those presents to to the, uh, the assembled 
um, elite footballers of, of Europe is Neymar. It's, um, I think it's very clear Neymar is sticking with his hope that he will get to go to Barcelona. Um, therefore, Paris can't do a deal with Real Madrid, um, which they'd prefer to do. Uh, the club-to-club -club agreement is much easier for them to make with Madrid than it is for Barcelona because that's where they want to, to move the player. Uh, I think Madrid are going to be more generous in terms of offer as well because Barcelona know that Neymar wants to come to them. So um, you've seen this situation where everyone is waiting on Neymar's uh, decision and Neymar is, is holding it up by not acceding to a move to Madrid. Um, he's also not done what Barcelona have asked him to do, which is to publicly state his desire to move specifically to Barcelona and not Madrid. Neymar's made it clear he wants to leave Paris and he wants out, but he, at not at any point has he said, I want to go to Barcelona and that's my only option. Um, because his priority is to get out of Paris rather than um, specifically that it has to be Barcelona. His preference is Barcelona, strong preference is Barcelona. But again, if he then commits verbally to that, he makes it uh, difficult for Madrid to do a deal because it becomes hard for Florentino Perez to, to take the player after he said he wants to go to Barcelona. And then he's dependent on Paris actually agreeing something with, with Barcelona, which, as we've detailed for some time now, is an issue because Qatar don't want to, to move the player there and Barcelona probably won't offer as much financially um, as uh, as Madrid will to, to do the deal. So you've got... Paris can attempt to put this deadline on and say we want it all done club to club by Wednesday uh, to let the player um, sort his side of it out with whichever club we decide he goes to and allow us to bring other players in. But um, they're taking a risk if they if they go down that line because all um, the parties involved know that Qatar, Paris Saint-Germain have made a sporting decision that it's in their best interest to get Neymar out. Yes, Qatar could back off on that and say we don't let the, the player leave um, and force him to spend another year in the French League but the repercussions potential repercussions of that are great so uh, Barcelona and Madrid's calculation is that they actually they want to move the player out the player wants to to leave um, so does that deadline really apply um, if it needs to go down to next Tuesday and the uh, the actual real transfer deadline um, to be resolved maybe it goes that far and, and remember we're talking huge amounts of money here um, this is the, the most expensive it was the most expensive transfer ever, remains the most expensive transfer ever when Neymar left Barcelona, forced his way out of Barcelona to go to Paris Saint-Germain two years ago um, for 222 million euros uh, PSG want to be seen to have got the majority of that money back and get a, a deal which looks good from their perspective. Uh, so it requires a substantial transfer fee and or players of high value being included in the deal. Um, Neymar is the best paid player at Paris Saint-Germain. He's prepared to take a pay cut, or he's promised to take a pay cut to go to Barcelona, but will still be substantially paid there. He had um, agreed back in February uh, to go to Madrid um, 
if they were able to put um, a transfer in place and agreed a salary there of, I believe, 35 million euros net to go to Madrid. So the the financial undertaking involved, you've also got to deal with the um, the agent's um, substantial demands here. Um, is large, so these are. It's not a simple deal to do, even if it was more straightforward in the sense that the the there was only one buying club, um, the selling club had decided a price, and the player was uh, resolved to go there. And that's absolutely not the situation we have. There's so many complexities in terms of the politics um, and the player's preference, and. Even the internal politics at the club, one of the clubs he's moving to, because you, you have Zinedine Zidane, who does not want Neymar as his first choice signing. He would rather have Paul Pogba. Um, but the president, Florentino Perez, driving the move for Neymar because it's in his interest and it's his preference to get the player at a time when that coach is under um, severe internal and external pressure at Madrid. We'll turn our attention to Zidane in a few moments. Um, but two Premier League players are also involved in this holding pattern, Duncan. Um, one more so than, than the other. Christian Eriksen um, is hoping uh, that he may still become a Real Madrid player in this window. Um, he is, I'm told by people close to him, very angry at the fact that um, he didn't start against Newcastle at home. Um, last weekend. Also, the case that uh, obviously that's not the that's the second game in which he has been on the bench and come on as a second half substitute, and he feels like uh, uh, he's being held hostage on the bench uh, by Maurizio Pochettino, who doesn't want him to be, if, if you like, in the shop window, um, showing off what he can do, uh, because that would only um, potentially uh, speed up any uh, move. Uh, by another club to buy him before the September 2nd deadline. So Ericsson very annoyed by the situation he finds himself in, in that uh, scenario. <clears throat> and also um, his preference has always been to move to Madrid. Also, obviously, if Madrid fail in their attempts to extract Neymar from PSG um, and that Neymar eventually goes to Barcelona. Um, then <clears throat> Paul Pogba, again, who is Zinedine Zidane's first choice in terms of the final uh, big summer signing for, for the club. Then Ericsson becomes a, a live issue for Madrid with regards to the squad rebuild because he is a creative midfield player who can turn over play, etc., etc. Um, the second Premier League player who is involved in this particular uh Neymar's sisters giving out of presents is potentially um, Wilfred Zaha of Crystal Palace. Um, I'm told that he is not first choice to go to Paris Saint-Germain to replace Neymar, that Paolo Dybala is very much first choice and that Dybala, as I said before, contract and personal terms have been agreed and therefore um, it would be quicker and easy for PSG to sign Dybala uh, in the eventuality of Neymar leaving. But still, if that falls down, and we know that Dybala is a little bit flighty, and I don't mean that about his travel preferences, um, he would prefer stay in Turin. But again, I think the message is very clear from Juventus and from Mirzo Sarri that they would rather he left. So we've got the situation that 
we have other players um, waiting effectively um, on tender hooks, Duncan, um, to see if deals are done, uh, and Neymar being obviously the catalyst right at the centre of that. Um, what do you? I mean, let, let's just try and assess. September second, the window closes. These are we're talking about major, major transfers here. Possibilities of getting them done. Uh, first of all, uh, in your opinion, and secondly, um, Neymar's position. How did, how can he move that on himself? You already said that Barcelona have asked him to make it clear publicly he wants to move there. Now he's made it clear he wants to leave, and the club said he can leave. But I'm seeing a stalemate, which right now I I can't see the resolution to that. Well, I think it's interesting what you mentioned about Ericsson. Um, and uh, I think this is something you see from footballers from time to time um, when they they want to move away. And Ericsson's been clear that he wants to move away from Tottenham and he sees the opportunity to go to um, a bigger club, a bigger contract, a new league, um, a league that most um, footballers want to uh, try at some point in their career. Um, when they have situations like that and they they realise they're not first choice, that it's not a you know a guaranteed move for them, they do want to demonstrate on the field of play how good they are. And, and you, you, you see that time and time again, a player performing better when his future um, is on the line in a sense, or a better future is placed in front of him. And, uh, and it's interesting you say that, um, you know, he feels like Pochettino is trying to keep him out of the, uh, the limelight um, as a way of uh, retaining him at the club. And it, and it would be interesting if Pochettino's um, tactic succeeds and he does end up retaining Ericsson, um, how the pair will get on for the rest of the season uh, and whether Daniel Levy will, will then come with a new contract offer to Ericsson and try and um, persuade him to remain um, at Tottenham uh, in, the, in the longer term. Um, it, again, it's pretty much in, it's in Neymar's hands here um, in, the, in the sense that he can take actions uh, to try and, and facilitate the move. Um, he can, he could go out and say, uh, pop, state publicly, I want to leave, this has to happen now. Um, I want to go to Barcelona, um, get the deal done. Um, but it, it's, you know, all, all the information I've had from his side for some time now has been the priority is not as much to get to Barcelona, although that is his preference, it's to get out of Paris Saint-Germain and back to Spanish football. So um, we'll, let's see if, he, if he's prepared to go down that line in the next few days or whether he hopes it, um, it gets resolved for him uh, by Barcelona producing an offer that's acceptable to Paris Saint-Germain and or Madrid backing away from, from the, their attempt to get him and, and leaving it uh, to Paris that your only option um, if you want Neymar out of your camp is to accept what Barcelona are putting on the table. Turning um, to the situation here in Spain with regards to um, the two super clubs, um, speaking to colleagues and some contacts, um, it's very clear that the friction which has existed over the entire summer and transfer window 
between President Florentino Perez and <clears throat> head coach Zinedine Zidane has only increased and become more contentious um, where the window is getting closer to closing. As we've mentioned, Zidane had made it very clear and it was even given a nickname uh, in the Spanish sports press Operation Pogba and that was the number one and the plan A signing. That's not been completed. It looks less and less likely that that will be completed. Um, Florentino has, Perez has been, I think, quite obdurate in his um, messages and his, uh, let's just say, the way that he's attempted to recruit Pogba because there's never been uh, a huge um, effort on his part because of the Neymar situation ongoing. Um, a three-man delegation returned to Paris today from Madrid to try and sort out the Neymar situation. Uh, Zidane was um, in charge of a rather dull and um, disappointing draw uh, in this weekend's round of La Liga games. Uh, 1-1 to Valladolid um, and it was an 88-minute equaliser uh, for the away team at the Santiago Bernabeu. Um, as you can imagine, the White Hankies, some of them were out, it was booze, um, speaking to, um, again, people close to uh, Madrid. Uh, they believe that there's a possibility that Zidane and Florentino will this marriage uh, of convenience, if you like, after last season's ridiculous um, managerial appointments at the Santiago Bernabeu could well uh, end in uh, a messy divorce again. Um, now, Duncan, I've been told, and I think it's correct, that Jose Mourinho remains close to Florentino Perez, has indeed uh, has communication with him on a fa fairly regular basis. And given um, what's available in terms of coaches out there um, who could come in and not just fight the fire, but obviously try and make them competitive, that Mourinho would be the obvious choice to replace Zidane should, in one week, one month, whatever, the um, relationship between himself and the president deteriorate to the point that Zidane leaves the club again. Yes, look, it's, there's no doubt that this is one of the jobs that Mourinho is monitoring um, as he waits to return to football. And um, pretty much every occasion in which Mourinho speaks uh, publicly, um, over the last few months, he he underlines how much he is missing being part of the game that he expected to be back in football by this stage, um, to have been doing a pre-season, um, that he's been working and preparing, he's got a coaching team in place um, and been doing preparations for his return to football. He doesn't want to be um, watching and analysing matches on TV, he wants to be back in the dugout. Um, and Madrid is one of the jobs, one of the major club jobs, which any um, impartial analyst would say there's a good chance is going to open up during the course of this season. Um, the relationship with Florentino Perez is good. Florentino Perez did not want him to leave Madrid when he did um, after his, uh, his spell as manager of the club. Um, when he won La Liga, stopped the, the Pep Guardiola juggernaut um, and uh, and set a number of, of uh, Liga records in terms of goals scored and points gained um, victories etc so 
he's a, an obvious choice because you 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 have that relationship in place. Florentino Perez called him and asked him to come back last season when he was in the midst of those um, uh, managerial uh, tribulations. Um, however, Mourinho was still at Manchester United at the time and did not want to quit Manchester United to take that job. He would be available for nothing. You're not having to pay a compensa- compensation package, as has often been the, the case with Mourinho, to take him from another club if you want to hire him. Um, he knows the language. He knows the um, the politics of the club. I think the difficult part there um, would be to absolutely persuade him to take that job again. Because I know that when uh, Madrid came calling last season, the reluctance wasn't purely because he was still at Manchester United and was committed to that job, although that was a a major element in it. It was also a reluctance to go back to Madrid because it was was a difficult place for him to manage um, the last time he was there. Um, with issues with certain senior players in the in the squad and issues with the media, so um, he would definitely need to be persuaded to go back. However, um, you have to say it's probably the most fertile ground and, and the best opportunity Florentino could have to try and get him back. In that he is desperate to go back to work. He wants a big club. He wants somewhere where he can. Um, prove his detractors wrong and win again Um, and you know Madrid is going to tick a lot of those boxes um, should that offer arrive Um, and I I don't think there's any doubt at all that if Zidane is not able to turn these results around and turn them around rapidly he will not be Madrid manager for a very long period of time because nobody survives at Madrid with a sequence of bad results. It's as simple as that. Well, interesting, one of the headlines in the Spanish sports press today um, was same old Zidane, same old conclusion, meaning the results, um, you know, defensive weakness, uh, that saw them concede late, et cetera, et cetera. From Mourinho's point of view, I guess, Duncan, there are two issues um, which he would think about from his first time at the club if he were to return. The first is, no Cristiano Ronaldo. And the second is, oh dear, Sergio Ramos is still there. <laughs> can, we, can we please sort that out, Florentino? Which is a difficult one to resolve because it seems that Sergio Ramos is always there. Well, look, you're coming in without the benefit of a pre-season. And, and pre-season is very important to the way Mourinho works um, because his training is so well organised. A lot of tactical uh, learning goes on um, in those sessions. And, and the way he works, a lot of his um, coaching isn't explicit. It, it's a, a process called guided discovery where um, he gets the team playing the way he wants them to through participation in a series of you know very strictly organised exercises with lots of variation in them that are prepared a long time in advance. So you're missing that, which is a handicap for any manager coming in. And he'd be missing the recruitment side. So Madrid have already spent a lot of money in this window, planning to spend more money in this window. First time they've spent... Um, very large sums of money for several years. And, uh, and Mourinho's had no say in that. 
So you're coming in with a, a sort of mishmash of Zidane's buys and Perez's buys and what's a pretty imbalanced squad um, as it stands um, and is unlikely to be all that greatly rebalanced in these last uh, few days of the window given the political um, aspects to the recruitment process that we've been talking about and um, that that uh, Zidane would like to have Paul Pogba, who probably won't, uh, they probably won't get, uh, who Manchester United don't want to sell. And um, and if you really, if you're Florentino Perez and your plan is to bring Jose Mourinho back to the club, or your um, your uh, escape route, uh, should things get worse with Zidane, is to bring Jose Mourinho back to the club, then that's the last signing you want to be making um, uh, in these last days of the window. That talk about. Uh, Rafaela, name our sister's birthday presents. That would be the least welcome birthday present anyone could have would be to come back and, and have to deal with uh, Paul Pogba after the, the two and a half years that uh, Mourinho had with him at Manchester United. Um, and then Neymar. Um, Neymar's an interesting one because he is a player that Mourinho tried to sign for Manchester United and called himself on several occasions during um, Neymar's final season in Barcelona to see if the player would be open to pushing for a move to United if he could convince the board to sign him at that time. So Mourinho has certainly rated Neymar as a, as a player in the, in the past and um, I think Neymar was very open to that move and, uh, and has encouraged, um, encouraged Paris Saint-Germain at one point to hire Mourinho as coach. So there, there's a, a, a good relationship there that could be worked upon. But um, as we've you know discussed in the podcast, they've signed Edan Hazard, uh, who plays in the same position in the field as, as Neymar prefers to play from. Um, if you were doing the rebuild on a rational basis and you had that much money still to spend on the squad uh, and on salary, he surely wouldn't allocate it to Neymar. I don't think Mourinho's choice would be to sign Neymar in these circumstances, but he could end up inheriting um, Neymar and the the leftovers of of Zidane's summer purchases uh, should he take that job. And, and that's going to make it harder. But um, for the first time in his career, he's not getting the first choice of jobs. Um, this is a new situation for him. And, uh, and he, he set out the, the the parameters of, of, of clubs he wants to work in. He's turned down a lot of job offers that don't fit those parameters. He's waiting for that big club um, where he can succeed again. And, um, and I, I don't think when a club like Madrid come calling, uh, be it Madrid, be it Bayern Munich, be it perhaps even Paris Saint-Germain, um, if Tam Tuchel um, gets himself into difficulties there, I don't see Mourinho finding it very easy to turn any of those clubs down uh, during this season when the offer finally comes. Well, Tam, of course, is, uh, currently finds himself in third place in League A after the uh, weekend's round of games and also with Edson Cavani and Kylian Mbappe getting injured. So uh, that's a bit of a disadvantage for uh, the big German, as uh, a big friend of ours, obviously. We will move uh, from Jose to his old club, Manchester United, Duncan, uh, because I believe you have some new information to update us on with regards to the potential 
move of um, Alexis Sanchez to Inter Milan? Yes, um, just that negotiations are, are ongoing there. Um, the, I'm told there is agreement between the clubs on the fee. That will be a €3 million Euro loan fee um, for the remainder of this season. And then an obligatory uh, €17 million Euro purchase option uh, at the start of next season. So basically a €20 million Euro total transfer fee with the, the, the deal being completed in a year's time. Um, the issue remains over the player's salary, um, how much of it Inter have to take on to take the player from Manchester United. Inter, I'm told, have been uh, have offered United to pay 50% of Sanchez's salary and they want the rest covered by um, Ed Woodward and co. Um, and uh, they're waiting to see whether United will accept that offer um, as uh, as a way of getting Sanchez out of the club or whether they're going to have to push a little bit higher in these last uh, few days um, to get that deal over the line. I think if you look at what Laguna Solskjaer said about Sanchez after um, Saturday's defeat to Crystal Palace, he's pretty much left it at Ed Woodward's door in that he said if there's a, a deal that's acceptable to the player and to the club, he will go. If not, I'm happy to have him stay here because I could do with the extra op options in attack. But um, Solskjaer obviously not um, pushing hard to retain Alexis and very much open to that deal going through. And, and that's why I think it will be concluded um, eventually because Alexis wants to move, Inter want to sign him, Antonio Conte is pushing Inter to make the deal happen and Manchester United obviously want as much of Alexis's um, uh, salary cost off their books as they can manage to, to get rid of and uh, at present it looks like Inter is the only real option they have, otherwise they keep him for uh, well, at least until January and have to pay him the salary in full until then. It's an interesting situation, Duncan, when the Premier League transfer window obviously closed um, already and a manager, and as we've you know spoken about before, we've, most German chief execs, etc., have never come across a manager who doesn't say he wants more players rather than less players. The position you have to get to as a head coach where you say, even though I can't replace him, I want him out is you know, there's a fine line there. There's no doubt Sanchez is a very talented um, football professional, but the stink he causes by simply being around the place in training, in dressing room, not playing, etc., etc., um, is so concentrated that you say, you know what, I don't care what you do, just get him out of my dressing room because um, he's not going to be an asset to us. I can't turn this around which in a way is an admission of failure on behalf of the coach because if you can't turn that around with a very talented football player, what does it say about you? Yeah, but to be fair to Solskjaer, he, I think he's always been fairly supportive of, of Sanchez in public. Um, he's, I can't recall him being hugely critical of him in any press conference. And even through the summer, his, his stance has been... There's a good player there. There's a guy who can score goals. 
um, if I am left with him here, then I will make the best out of that situation. And, and perhaps he's looking at what's happened in the first three games of the season. Um, you know, he made those comments about Sanchez after a match in which his team had 23 shots and only managed to hit the target three times. Um, he also made it after a match in which Anthony Martial went down with a, what looks like a muscular injury. Um, and, you know, Rashford's form wasn't great. He had to bring Mason Greenwood on um, to try and turn the game around. Didn't make a huge impact. Got a, a, an excellent goal from Daniel James. Really, um, really good, um, intelligent, calm piece of finishing, which um, looked to have turned the game around for United in the sense it looked like they probably would go on to win it at that stage. But he's very shallow in attack. And um, you can understand him thinking, actually, maybe Alexis staying is not a bad thing for me because um, I've, I've got a Premier League schedule, I've got Europa League to deal with. And I think he said that Alexis will play um, in Europa League for him um, should he remain. Um, look, th this is a financial decision. I think on Manchester United's part, I think it's uh, it's it's about yes, the player has been problematic in the dressing room. Talking to people who've worked with him through his time there, he has caused problems with other issues. He's been an unhappy figure. Um, he's a bit uh, something of a loner. Um, so, so that kind of uh, dressing room dynamics you're talking about, that argument makes sense. But United have placed themselves in a difficult position because they've allowed their best scorer um, from open play in the last two seasons to go to Inter already and not replaced. Uh, and they're now looking at, at letting their second most experienced forward go to Inter as well and not replace him. Had they signed uh, another striker before the Premier League window closed, it would be an easier option for Solskjaer. As it stands, he's just going to have to deal with um, whatever resolution Woodward and Pepe Marotta come to. We'll come to Manchester United's defensive issues in terms of analysis uh, in a little bit. But uh, also, Marcus Rojo, Duncan, you first reported um, interest with Fenerbahce, which was confirmed, but then the Fenerbahce have dropped out, it seems. They, they feel that Rojo's wage demands are too excessive. Um, do you have any updates and news on, on Rojo's potential for leaving before the window closes on September 2nd? Well, the information I have is that Fenerbahce remain interested in the player. Um, the difficulty, of course, is that they, they are highly unlikely to be able to pay the kind of transfer fee that Manchester United have been looking for. They've, Manchester United went into this window valuing Rojo at £25 million. They had the opportunity to offload him to Everton, a move that he wanted to take. Everton only wanted to do the deal on the basis of a loan and United blocked it for that reason. Um, Fenerbahce have been trying to do a deal. Um, Rojo's representatives were out in Istanbul recently to try and conclude that. The latest I have is that Rojo is insisting that he gets out um, before this window closes. Um, he's desperate to play football again. He realises that his chances of playing are extremely limited under Solskjaer with the you know, seven 
senior centre-backs on the books at Old Trafford at, at present. Um, he would, I'm told, like it to be a full transfer if that can be negotiated with, um, with a club, albeit more likely one of these loan with obligatory options to buy uh, deals, I think is, is more realistic. I'm told there is interest also in France and Spain for the player. Um, and uh, again, we'll, we're going to find out in the next few days whether something is done there. And again, I think it, this one comes down to Ed Woodward and Manchester United's selling policy, um, whether they're prepared to go down the line that they look like going down with Sanchez, which is to you know make the best of a bad job and recover as much uh, cash from the deal as they can by offloading them to another club or whether they will continue to insist on a high transfer fee for a player who almost certainly won't be used um, regularly at Manchester United if he remains at the club and if that transfer fee doesn't come, retain him at the club for another season on his £8 million a year salary. That'll be the decision that, um, that Woodward will have to make because I don't think they're going to get a, a highly lucrative offer for a player who's barely played football for the, the last year and who is clearly surplus to playing requirements at Manchester United. So any of the clubs negotiating with United know that they have the, the strong position in terms of trying to, to get the, the fees, loan, field, loan fees um, options to buy down to as limited a level as they can. Some suggestions here in Spain, Duncan, that um, Atletico Madrid might be interested in Rojo, which wouldn't surprise me. Um, however, uh, going back to your um, statistic that uh, United currently have seven senior centre-backs on their books uh, against Crystal Palace. It looked like maybe on a couple of occasions they could have done with seven centre-backs on the pitch <laughs> to try and stop what was clearly a very poor defensive display. Um, it seemed to me, Duncan, that these the, United have been repeating the mistakes of the past again and again. We do say that, you know, it's a fool who uh, doesn't learn from mistakes um, of others, but certainly an idiot that doesn't <laughs> learn from mistakes of himself. And Manchester seem to find themselves in this cycle of conceding cheap goals to what should be inferior opponents and also ones who they should be beating. And already, it's like, and I've heard this from many Manchester fans who um, follow us on social media, this is Groundhog Day. Even though we've invested 50 million in Juan Basaka, 80 million in Maguire, we're still defending in the same way. Yeah, it's the same performances, the same outcomes. Um, three, three games into the Premier League season, they've had a great victory to, to start their campaign against Chelsea when pretty much everything fell for them. Um, I don't think anyone really thought that was on the balance of play a 4-0 win um, in terms of did Manchester United or Manchester United four goals better than Chelsea? They weren't, but they started off with that excellent start you know, to the season and the confidence that engenders. Then they go to Wolves and drop points again, um, pretty much in a way that they have done every time they've played Wolves since Wolves returned to the, the, the Premier League. And that was always going to be a difficult game for Manchester United because Solskjaer, for all he's said, he wants to turn United into attacking front foot team. 
the the structure of his squad is one which is best suited to counter-attacking football, which was demonstrated against Chelsea. They really took Chelsea to par- apart when they were able to sit back in defence and use their quick players on the break to take additional goals. You don't get to do that against Wolves because Wolves are too canny. They want to make you come to them and hit you in the break. Um, and I think that's why Wolves have taken these good results off um, United again and again because they're they're suited to play against Manchester United and suited to take advantage of the weaknesses in Manchester United's defence. I think the biggest worry is the weaknesses are still there and the goal they handed over to Crystal Palace was embarrassing. Um, it's a straight ball from the goalkeeper down the middle of the pitch. The defensive line that United set up is... Well, you have Aaron Wan-Bissaka on the halfway line. You've got um, Harry Maguire two yards off the halfway line. Um, You've got Lindelof by himself in the middle of the pitch with three Crystal Palace players um, challenging for the high ball, four yards back from the halfway line. And Luke Shaw also four yards back from the halfway line. Luke Shaw carrying an injury which he had to to go off with subsequently. Um, That was a weight injury, was it? <laughs> well, I've got lead, lead bracelets on his ankles or anything. It's, a uh, it's another muscular injury for Luke Shaw. Um, one of two muscular injuries that that uh, United suffered during that game. So Martial had to, well, he didn't have to come off the pitch. He had to carry on with his muscular injury at the end. So. Um, two muscular injuries in one game, three matches into the season. Again, doesn't bode well. Um, after Willie Gunnar Solskjaer had had that pre-season that he was uh, placing such importance on in terms of changing the, the fitness of his squad and changing the way they were able to, to play games. Um, he told us that week after week after week at the end of last season when results start to go against them. But the I think the, the key thing here is that They've made two record signings to improve their defence. And um, I think Juan Bazaka is, is clearly a step up on what they've had before. He's a brilliant one-on-one defender. He's demonstrated that in his matches so far. Where you can ask questions about him is positionally. And positionally, he wasn't great on that um, goal that gave Crystal Palace the advantage. But the one who was really poor was Harry Maguire. He's a centre-back brought in to lead the defensive line. Um, he ends up, you can you can look at the images of um, where he is as that ball comes up from Crystal Palace's goalkeeper. He's 10 yards away from any Crystal Palace player. He's, as I say, he's ahead of his central defensive partner. He's to the left side of the field rather than being in the centre of the pitch. Um, Lindelof misses his header and Maguire then runs back and plays the um, uh, Jordan Ayew who's receiving the, the header from Schlup on side um, but he's still 10 yards away from Ayew and as we said about Maguire before this deal was done he is positionally weak he makes positional errors you can see that in his game um, from watching him at Leicester City and he doesn't have the pace to recover from he's never getting back to IU having given him a 10 yard uh, start having played him on side so IU is going to have a shot on goal and you're down to David De Gea to stop him one on one which he didn't this is predictable from Maguire and we've seen this um, eulogising of him in recent weeks uh, particularly after the first game 
for Manchester United. He was he talked about being on a par with Rio Ferdinand. Um, he just isn't that player, and and the the weaknesses in his game are obvious. He's a great uh, one-on-one, um, particular aerial defender. He's very good with the ball at his feet. He looks great when he gets the ball on the feet and dribbles forward. But the core elements of a central defender is to stop the opposition. I think there's also an element here where analytics um, has a problem analysing defenders. So I've seen a, um, a piece of the in the BBC comparing Maguire's stats to other top defenders in Europe. And one of the, the stats that were highlighting was that he only had one error leading to a goal. Um, I think in the previous season, possibly the previous two seasons of uh, of league football, um, he he won't have been credited with an error leading to a goal for what he did against Crystal Palace on Saturday. But he's absolutely sure about it. He made a fundamental error of central defensive play and that fundamental error of, of central defensive play led to a goal. It's just because he didn't hand the ball over directly. It doesn't go down analytically as uh, an error to acquire. That pace isn't going to come. It's not going to change. So he has to be more intelligent about where he positions himself on the field. Let's see if um, Manchester United are capable of, of coaching that into him. Um, but it's, you know, it's a big ask to make a player a world record signing in his position, make him the supposedly the solution to defence that's been a problem for years, and then have to coach him into being the player he should be when you buy him. For that money, um, knowing they have a problem in central defence for such a long time, they should be buying a finished product. They shouldn't be buying a compromised player who, as we say, all of this stuff was predictable. All of it we've seen in his game before. Uh, It's only taken three matches for it to cost United three points. If you look at the game against Wolves, I spotted at least two um, significant positional errors he made, which didn't actually lead to goals, but they could have led to goals in those games. It's it's part of the way Harry Maguire is as a player. Insightful analysis, as always, from Dr. D. And I'm glad to say that um, from Harry Maguire, um, he's led me wonderfully into our heroes and villains because it's Monday's podcast. So it's heroes and villains of the last few days or indeed last weekend depending on who we're choosing. And um, I'm going to go for my hero, before Duncan gives me his villain, uh, as actually Nicola Pepe, Arsenal's record signing, who apparently, I'm told, uh, reliably completed the first dribble past Virgil van Dijk for 125 years. At least that's what someone told me. And someone, someone told me anyway. It could be less than that, but uh, apparently it was the first time the great one has been uh, dribbled past in in uh, living memory. Really, uh, so well done to Nicola Pepe. Um, not well done so much for the result. Obviously, it didn't have a, a massive impact on the game, Duncan. Um, but uh, Virgil Van Dijk, obviously, who was used up by Harry Maguire as the most expensive defender in world football. Um, neither of them having a, a particularly great weekend, although you'd have to say Virgil's was better than Harry's in terms of result. Duncan, um, please give us your villain of the weekend, um, which, uh, yeah, I, I know who it is, and I'm very happy to pile in, as we say. 
I have to say, I, I, I thought Van Dyke did pretty well against Pepe at, at the weekend because um, it was a new problem for him and the pace was significant. And I saw watched that game quite carefully in the first half. You could see, um, alerted to the challenge, you see Andy Roberts in particular having, having big issues with Pepe. But in the end, Van Dyke managed to come out of that pretty well. So even if he did have his, uh, his uh, perfect... Not being dribbled past statistic deleted by by the um, the former Leo player on, on their first meeting. I think fifty games that. apparently. I'm being so I'm now not being facetious. Fifty games, I'm told. That was yeah. the first time in fifty games he's been dribbled past. I I know, and it's again, it's a problem with analytics because I think if you watch Fulham play Liverpool last season, you will see Ryan Sessegnon um, go past. Uh, Virgil van Dijk and put a shot in a goal but for some reason that wasn't credited as a dribble um, so it depends what your definition of dribble is I suppose but um, mm. he has players have gone past him previously and they will go past him again but they don't go past him very often because he's very quick unlike Maguire which allows him to make mistakes and recover them unlike Maguire yeah. that's why he's uh, really is um, worth the transfer fee as for the villain of the week, um, it is one of our VAR propagandists, um, Neil Swarbrick. The head, head of VAR, Duncan, indeed. Oh, yes, he is. Yeah, he, is he is, yeah, he is the lead man on VAR for PGMOL. He is the chief Valerie of the Premier League. <laughs> <laughs> head um, Valerie, so, what a position that is. <laughs> so in, in his... Um, in his erstwhile defence of the uh, VAR system which is causing problems um, every weekend as predicted um, he has now uh, gone to the BBC uh, and be having it alerted to him that actually offside isn't millimetre perfect and offside won't actually give you every um, uh, VAR won't actually give you the offside decision perfectly in every situation um, and uh, we're talking about centimetres of what margin of error in, in the system. His response was, um, well, you're just going to have to put up with it. Um, he said, if, if people are saying that's not good enough, that is their call. Um, but at the moment, that is what we operate with. If 50 frames per second seems unbelievably slow, slow then so be it. We can only use what we are provided with. And yeah, he's right. You can only use what you're provided with. But if you're claiming it's perfect and it's been demonstrated to you that it's not perfect, perhaps you shouldn't be using it for every single call and overrule it. Marginal decisions, as we've seen against uh, Raheem Sterling and others so far this season, on the basis of a you know a, a camera frame rate that's not quick enough uh, and subjective decisions on when the ball is kicked and uh, where a player's um, arm finishes and his, his torso begins. Um, but it seems none of the people who have been placed in charge of VR are prepared to accept that the system is imperfect and therefore should be used um, with tolerance rather than um, as a definitive perfect answer that they're presenting it to be in all circumstances. So two things stand out for me here, Duncan, in terms of again the ongoing debate about VAR. First is one of the reasons it was introduced and brought in was because assistant referees or linesmen, as they used to be known, or linos, as players still call them, um, are human and therefore 
prone to error, but not every single decision. Some assistant referees are brilliant. Most are competent. We're now admitting that the system we brought in to eradicate the errors of assistant referees is error-prone and imperfect. The same as the assistant referees, funnily enough. So have we actually moved forward here at all in terms of these decisions? And it seems to me that until someone manages to contact God, whoever that is, because <laughs> he, he is the perfect being, apparently, and says, God, can you come and do VR for us? Then it will be infallible. But I thought the Premier League already had God as head of VAR because Neil Swarbrick. Neil Swarbrick. Oh, that's a big call. I'm not sure we'll be able to get that reviewed. I'll tell you what is interesting here is when IFAB made their, I think, third clarification on the new laws of the game that they've needed to do since bringing them in. And remember, it's still only August. There's a line which hasn't really been greatly reported as far as I can see on VAR. And what they said was, if the replay evidence is not clear because of camera position, angle, difficulty determining the exact moment the ball is played, etc., the VAR does not intervene. So I think that's um, IFAB, not FIFA, who have pushed the system, but IFAB, who are the, the body that, that determine the laws of the game, saying, look, this system isn't as perfect as uh, organisations like FIFA and the Premier League are presenting it to be. In some games, the, there's a very limited number of camera angles. You've got this issue of uh, frame rate. You've got this issue of detecting when a ball is played. Um, we need to accept there's a margin of error here. And if it's not clear, a mistake has been made, then VAR should not overrule the decision of the officials on the field. As I say, this hasn't been highlighted at all in the media yet. It's going to be interesting to see whether IFAB will push that as we go further into the season, uh, once we get into the Champions League, for example, and um, we continue to have uh, the VARs making the kind of very, very marginal, contentious calls that we've seen in the Premier League. We saw in Serie A this weekend, and we've uh, seen in Champions League uh, last season. So as everyone knows, our listeners, I'm fond of a cricket analogy. Effectively, IFAB are saying, if there is no um, absolute determinative evidence that the decision of VAR is correct, you refer to the on-field umpire's original decision. Would that be correct, Duncan? That's, yeah. It's saying so effectively are, what they're saying. saying VAR should not intervene if the replay evidence is not clear. And people, for those of you who do love a bit of cricket, if the on-field umpire's original decision wasn't adhered to um, in yesterday's Ashes test, England would have lost if Ben Stokes would have been not the hero of a nation, if not uh, the cricketing world, um, as of this particular point in time. And as you know, I do love me cricket. Uh, we also love to uh, stay in touch with you guys about everything football related, obviously. Although if you want to text, uh, tweet us on cricket, I'm very happy to take you up on that. Um, so please get in touch at Transfer Podcast as our official podcast handle. Uh, you can take it up individually with Duncan and I 
at Duncan Castles. And of course, I'm at Garbo SJ, as you all know. Although one of our uh, regular listeners was asking me um, if anyone could determine the um, the route of that particular handle. And Sumil, I'm, I've got to say, I did reveal this in a previous podcast, but that particular needle in the haystack is up to you to find. So you know who you are, find it. Uh, if you enjoy the podcast, and we are officially Yuko's number one football podcast, then make us even better. Give something back. Go on to iTunes, give us a five-star review. And as you know, then it's more accessible to more people. This is the end of Monday's podcast. I'll remind you again, the European transfer window closes in September the 2nd. So there's lots more news, lots more drama to come in the coming seven days. We'll be back on Wednesday to obviously update you on everything as well. We'll update you through Twitter as well in between now and then. Um, Say thank you to Duncan for, again, another excellent, excellent analysis of everything that's going on. And also, we shall see you through the transfer window on Wednesday when it's your questions answered. 